0: Hi, I'm Kyle Carlson. You're listening to one of my messages from Imprint Community Church in Northeast Baltimore. I pray that this message will encourage you in your walk with Jesus Christ. Visit us online at imprintcommunity.org and worship with us in person on Sundays at 10 a.m. at Seven Oaks Elementary School. Enjoy the message. We are in chapter 20 of the Gospel of John in our journey through this gospel over the last year and a half or so. We've walked with Jesus through various public miracles. In fact, John has recorded seven of them for us within the first 12 chapters of John's gospel. Seven acts of power, seven miracles that point to the identity of Jesus as the Son of God, as the anointed messiah that is the anointed savior who would come for his people each one of these miracles pointed to that identity in the back half of john's gospel beginning in chapter 13 jesus was with his disciples for a final meal and a final sermon if you will a farewell address where he warned them about some things that were going to be happening Things are going to get tough. I am going away. The world will hate you. You are going to pick up my mantle and carry on my work, but it's not going to be an easy road, he told them. The world has hated me, and therefore it will hate you as well. Nevertheless, he assured them that he would give them the presence of the Holy Spirit. Remember, God is three persons in one being. God the Father, God the Son, who is the incarnate Jesus Christ and God the Spirit. And so Jesus says, as he is about to ascend to heaven and be back with his Father again, he will then send to his followers the Holy Spirit, who would indwell them, that is, live inside them and equip them and empower them and lead them in carrying on the ministry of Jesus in the world and throughout the world, which is what we've seen over the last 2,000 years. So now Jesus has completed his message, and they've been praying together out at the garden where he often went to pray, and Roman soldiers and Jewish leaders came and arrested him, and he had um, they drummed up false charges of uh, sedition that is rising against the state as, uh, as a, uh, a revolutionary of sorts. And he was condemned under the Roman governor Pilate to be crucified. And so the last chapter, the last couple of weeks of uh, our time in John's gospel took us through his crucifixion, his death on the cross, and then his burial by his followers. We saw a couple of unlikely people, unlikely followers emerge from the shadows, if you will, at the end of chapter 19. One uh, rich man named Joseph of Arimathea, who was a member of the Sanhedrin that is the kind of chief counsel of the Jewish people, came to Pilate and asked that he might take Jesus' body. And he buried Jesus in his own new tomb. No one had yet been laid in this tomb. And so so uh, Joseph publicly aligned himself with Jesus in this way. And at the same time, Nicodemus, the Pharisee that we saw back in chapter 3 and chapter 7, who had approached Jesus and said, what are you all about? Right? Jesus told them, you have to be born again in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. Nicodemus came bringing burial spices and participated in the burial of Jesus again. And so Jesus has now been crucified and prepared for burial. And if you look at the last verse of chapter 19, verse 42 says, So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. And so chapter 20 begins with that setting. Jesus is in the tomb. Jesus is dead. The disciples of Jesus have all gone back to their homes. And remember, the weekend was a Sabbath. And so there was a special time of rest and remembrance and reflection. And I imagine that this was a weekend of a special somber, sad Memory for Jesus' disciples as they considered his death and wondered what would then come. I'm going to read for you this passage, verses 1 through 18, and then we'll walk through these verses and find what the Holy Spirit might have for our hearts to be encouraged and challenged by today. So, beginning in verse 1 of John chapter 20. Now, on the first day of the week, "'Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark "'and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. "'So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, "'the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, "'They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, "'and we do not know where they have laid him.' "'So Peter went out with the other disciple, "'and they were going toward the tomb. "'Both of them were running together, "'but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. It's a familiar story. Well-known verses, even the way that it unfolds, for anyone who's been in church services for any period of time, probably heard this, probably read this, maybe even heard sermons preached on this passage, and so we have the danger of overfamiliarity, kind of robbing us of the, the, the unfolding of it. We read John 20, verse 1, first day of the week, Mary Magdalene, we know what happens. Mary doesn't know what happens. The disciples don't know what happens. So it's hard for us to slow down and see the unfolding of this narrative from their perspective, from their vantage point. But I think it's worthwhile to try to do that, to try to put ourselves there in that moment to whatever extent that we can, to try to see how this unfolds. So it begins, chapter 20, Mary Magdalene coming to the tomb early. She's the only one mentioned here in John. He only mentions Mary Magdalene. We know from the other Gospels that she's not alone. In fact, there were a group of women who had come along with her uh, early in the morning. Uh, John confirms that Mary was not alone uh, in verse 2 when Mary reports to presumably Peter and John, the other disciples, Jesus, they've taken the Lord away, and we don't know where he is Lane. So she acknowledges the the presence of others along with her. We don't know. But John only by name mentions Mary Magdalene. And in fact, Mary is kind of the bookend character of this resurrection narrative. We'll see some significance to that a little later on. But Mary begins this narrative as the only one named going to the tomb early. And of course, it ends with a scene with Mary and Jesus one-on-one. Uh, Luke told us in 24 that they were coming, these women came to the tomb with burial spices. So it appears that in their haste on the Sabbath day, as the sun was setting on Sabbath, they were hurrying to get Jesus' body down from the cross and prepared for burial and in a tomb so that they wouldn't be working and burying a body during the Sabbath. And so it seems that some of their work was undone. So they had come back now the morning after the Sabbath to finish what they had started. So they brought some more spices to pre- prepare his body. And of course, when they get there, they find the stone that covers the door has been moved away. And the tomb is empty. It says she stooped inside it and saw that it was empty. So... Mary doesn't immediately go, like we expect, because we know the story, right? Mary should get there, find the stone rolled away, and the tomb empty, and go, Jesus is risen, right? That's what, that's what we think. Why isn't she doing that, right? She should be celebrating, because clearly the absence of Jesus' body from the tomb must mean that he's alive. But that's not where her mind goes. And remember, and John even reminds us at the end of uh, this paragraph in verse 9, they did not yet understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. So this is not really uh, in her mind, right? Uh, D.A. Carson points out well. This is another aspect of this. He says, the robbing of graves was a crime sufficiently common that the emperor Claudius, eventually ordered capital punishment to be meted out to those convicted of destroying tombs, removing bodies, or even displacing the ceiling stones. So, in fact, it was a fairly common practice of the day for people to rob graves, which sounds sort of unfathomable to us. But this was a common uh, crime that had to be dealt with. Now, if you add to the fact that grave robbery was apparently fairly common the disdain that the Jewish leaders have displayed toward Jesus, obviously hating him, drumming up false charges against him, demanding his crucifixion, hurling insults at him while he is being crucified. If you add their disdain toward Jesus, it's not that far of a stretch. It's not unreasonable at all, really, for Mary to assume that someone has taken the body of Jesus from this tomb, perhaps even On the orders of these Jewish leaders. Maybe they don't like the idea that Jesus has been laid to rest in a noble place, the grave of a wealthy man who had his own freshly cut tomb. So perhaps she thinks somebody who doesn't like Jesus wanted him out of this nice burial place, and so they've removed his body and done something with it. So at any rate, resurrection is not on her mind. When she finds the tomb unoccupied and so she is afraid and confused and concerned for her Lord and for the dishonoring of the body of Jesus. And so she goes back to Simon Peter and the other disciple, which we've come to see throughout John's gospel, refers to John himself. So, John just refers to himself as the other disciple or the one whom Jesus loved. And so, the other two main players in this portion of the passage are Simon Peter and John, who's writing this gospel. And so, Mary goes back to Simon Peter and John, and she says in verse 2 They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. This would be another opportunity. For Peter and John, who clearly, I mean, they're the front, they're the leaders of this group of disciples, they're Jesus' right-hand guys, surely they'd be prepared to say, no, no, Mary, check it out. If the tomb's empty, that means he's risen, right? That means he's alive, because he told us that we knew that was going to happen, right? But they don't do that. They're apparently just as confused and concerned as Mary is, and so they get up, and they head toward the tomb, and we get this kind of funny little detail of John and Peter kind of racing each other to get there. And John, of course, says he had the edge, like the other disciple outran Peter and got there first. A little bit of competition, perhaps. But he seems to pause at the mouth of the tomb and give Peter deference. And so Peter, not uncharacteristically, just jumps right in as the first one in, right? First guy out of the boat, first guy to take out the sword and try to lop off the head of one of the guys arresting Jesus. This is Peter, right? So they get to the tomb, and in he goes. I'm not stopping at the mouth of the tomb. I'm going in there to see what's up. And so John and Peter now are at the tomb. And we see, again, an unfolding of information. So in verse 5, when John gets there first, he says, Stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there. But he did not go in. So Mary just saw that the, tomb, the stone had been rolled away and the, the tomb appeared to be empty. John now gets a little closer, looks a little bit more intently, and he sees the the grave clothes, the the cloths that they had wrapped the body of Jesus in when he buried. They sees the cloths lying in the tomb. And then Peter sees one further detail in verse 6. Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there. That is exactly what John had just seen. And the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. And so we have the unfolding of information in a way that, that, that gives this the ring of authenticity. This is an eyewitness account with the de- level of detail at who was there first and who saw what and how it unfolded. And so we have just another added confidence that John is writing what he has seen, what he has witnessed himself. But I think that the, the description of the linens, because we have a couple of verses here, right, about what they see, and John sees the, the, the linens lying there, and then Peter saw those linens and the face cloth, which was taken off and folded and set in a place uh, not with the others. I think there, there's maybe two functions of the, the grave cloth discussion. Number one is it pokes a hole in the stolen body theory. Uh, though the opponents of Jesus, who obviously did not want to give any credence to the notion that Jesus had risen from the dead, came up with the idea to promote the idea that the disciples of Jesus had actually removed his body to make it look as though he had risen. And in fact, we see in Matthew 28, that's exactly what the uh, the, the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin are doing. They're coming up with this, this story. Well, this is what we'll say. They've clearly just taken the body of Jesus away, so it would look like they've risen. However, if there are grave clothes and a folded head cloth lying in a separate place in the tomb, what grave robber is going to take the time to unwrap the body of Jesus and fold the cloths and lie them back in place and then do away with the body of the, if they're robbing the grave a they're in a hurry b they probably don't want to actually touch the body itself they'd probably be glad for some cloths between them and the body right so it doesn't make sense for grave robbers to take the body of Jesus but leave the clothes in this nice folded way right that it just it's ridiculous so it it pokes a hole in that theory anybody who tries to say and even down through history there have been those who say Jesus didn't really rise from the dead his followers just staged it to make it look like that. Well, we've got an eyewitness account here saying that they found grave clothes folded in a pile. I doubt somebody stole the body of Jesus in order to make that happen. The second function that I think this has is that it contrasts the resurrection of Jesus with the resurrection of Lazarus. If you'll remember back in John 11, the kind of final public miracle that John had recorded for us. In John 11, Jesus raises Lazarus, one of his friends who had been sick and died. Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And in 1144, as he stands in front of the tomb and calls out to Lazarus, he says in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out, right? And 1144 says, the man who had died came out. But here's how the condition he was in his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. So Jesus had to order his family to unbind him, right, so that he could be loose of the cloth and free to move about. Jesus, in his own resurrection, needed no such assistance. He was apparently in no hurry and was able to remove the grave clothes in an orderly way and simply set them aside done with that i don't need grave clothes anymore the grave is done the grave is behind me this is finished i'm moving on so they have found an empty tomb and they have found cloths and this uh, cloth covering the head of jesus lying neatly folded up and verse eight look at look at this this is this is john's response to what he sees The other disciple, that is John, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. He saw and believed. That theme is going to come up again even later in this chapter, the seeing and believing piece. If you remember the Apostle Thomas and Jesus' interaction with him, which we'll talk about next week. Seeing and believing is another theme that's going to come back up. So John has gone into the tomb, and he sees and he believes. He doesn't give us a lot of detail about what exactly was in in his mind, the content of his belief. But you've got to assume that his belief must have been at least a dawning of the realization that Jesus had come back to life. That Jesus is not here, and it's not because he's been stolen. It's because he is alive again and so John seems to be the first one there, not just first one at the tomb, but the first one to arrive at the conclusion of faith. Jesus has defeated death. Jesus is alive, and he reminds us there in verse 9, for as yet they, that is the rest of the disciples, did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. And in fact, that's in keeping uh, with Luke 24, 12, when it speaks of them leaving the tomb, it, it, Luke says that Peter went away wondering to himself what had happened. So that seems to be consistent with, as they leave the tomb together, John is maybe already there. He's already convinced Jesus must be alive. And Peter is like, I'm just, I don't, I'm not sure. I don't get it. So we have this seeing and believing, or believing before you see, kind of a, uh, an interplay going on. So John has seen and believed. And so that's basically the first half of this, uh, this narrative, and it really just all deals with an empty tomb, right? We haven't seen Jesus yet, or heard from Jesus yet, or met the angels yet. There's no explicit announcement or proof, so to speak, that Jesus is alive, except what is implied by the empty tomb, and so we've seen how they've kind of interacted with that. And the disciples, verse 10, went back to their homes, so... Maybe they're going to go talk and debate, or maybe they're going to wait. Is Jesus going to show up? Which, of course, he will. But so they've gone back to their homes. But verse 11 comes back to Mary. All right, We kind of lost sight of Mary after she went and found Peter and John. Now Mary comes back into focus in verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. She's not willing to leave yet. She's still dismayed, still confused, still afraid about what's happened to Jesus. And so she's still there at the tomb, and she's crying. She's beside herself. And it says, as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. She stooped to look in. And does she see grave clothes and the face cloth lying folded and nothing else? She gets a little bit different scene, doesn't she? When Mary looks into the tomb, look at verse 12. She saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain. One at the head and one at the feet. There's something you don't see every day. I'm looking into this empty tomb where, by the way, Peter and John just were. They didn't say anything about angels, right? They just talked about cloths. Yeah, I saw some cloths lying there where he used to be. So Mary might be assuming I'm going to see the same thing. I just want to see it for myself. But when she goes in there, there's angels sitting there. And they go, why are you crying? Which is such an interesting little detail that that's what they would say. Almost like they're like, don't you realize what's happening? In one of the other gospels they said, why are you looking for the living among the dead? He's not here, but he's risen. And so it's like they they know what's happened. They know why Jesus isn't there, and they're kind of going, when are you going to catch up? Like, this is good news, right? Why are you crying? But she goes along with it, and, you know, she apparently unfazed by the fact that she's now having a conversation with angels. Goes, well, they've taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they've laid him. I might have a few more questions in my mind. If I'm talking to angels in this empty tomb, but Mary's very single-minded. I got this one focus. Where is Jesus? Where have they laid him? Angels? Hey, maybe you know. Where's Jesus? Where'd they put him, right? So suddenly, in this moment, she becomes aware of somebody behind her. You know how you can tell when someone's coming up behind you, right? You're like, who's, who's there? So Mary kind of does that. She turns, and she sees someone that she thinks is a gardener, Right? Like, okay, okay, maybe we're getting a little closer. Come on, come on. Jesus is there. He's standing right there, but she doesn't know that it's Jesus. And so what does Jesus do? He says the very same thing. Why are you weeping? But then he adds one more question Whom are you seeking? Which is the very same question, if you recall, that he asked Judas and his betrayers the the Jewish leaders back in chapter 18 when they came into the garden where Jesus and his disciples were praying Jesus asked Jesus came forward and said whom do you seek and that of course would lead to his arrest and crucifixion now Jesus stands in front of Mary and he says whom do you seek who are you looking for And supposing that he must be the gardener, she says, where have you taken him? If you've moved moved him somewhere, just let me know. I'll go get him. Now, the, 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 the presence of a gardener makes sense because John told us back in chapter 19 that this tomb was in a garden. 1941 said, now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. In the garden was a new tomb, which no one had yet been laid, and that's where they laid him. And so... There's apparently this uh, a pretty sizable garden, and so she sees a guy that she doesn't recognize immediately. Maybe he's tending the grounds, right? Maybe he's a gardener, and so she asks him the same question: "If you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away." Actually, that's not even form of a question at all. It's more like she's getting kind of testy. Like this is like, just tell me, right? If you took him away, just tell me where he is. I'll get I'll get him out of your hair. And we'll be on with our day, right? Like, just tell me where you've laid him. And again, again we go like, why don't you recognize this as Jesus, right? You know him. You followed him. You were at the cross with him. Why doesn't, why doesn't it compute? I think there are a couple of reasons that we could sort of extend some grace to Mary. Number one being, Jesus probably looks a little bit different. The last time she looked at Jesus, he was mangled and bloodied and lifeless, Now she's looking at a perfectly whole, healthy, strong Jesus. In fact, in his resurrected body, which we have some clues later in the gospel, can do some different stuff than a normal body, like walk through doors that are locked and appear on a lake and things like that. So He's a little different than the last time she saw him. And she's so beset with grief and confusion and concern about where the body of Jesus has gone. He's still dead in her mind, right? Jesus is still dead and somebody's carried him away. So she doesn't get that this is who he is. If you've carried him away, just tell me where he is and I'll go take care of him. And Jesus stops her. And I love this. This is so beautiful. He just goes, Mary, just Mary. That's all he's got to say, just her name. And immediately she knows, immediately she gets it. She turned and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher, master, Lord, it's you. There's immediate recognition when she hears Jesus speak her name. And I can't help but think of the words of Jesus in John chapter 10, verse 3, where he spoke of himself as the good shepherd. He said, the one who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. Listen to this. The sheep hear his voice. And he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. He calls them by name, and they know his voice. So Mary can't recognize that Jesus is alive, and she can't recognize that this guy that she thinks is a gardener is actually the Lord until he calls her by name, Mary. And she goes, teacher, rabbi, it's you, it's you. And obviously she's wrapped herself around him and is hugging him and holding to him because he says to her in verse 17, don't, don't cling to me. Which is not harsh like, get off me, don't touch me, what are you doing? It's not like that. This is all about purpose. This is all about the mission that God would have him to accomplish because he says, I have not yet ascended to the Father. So he's risen from the dead. He's still there on the earth. But there's a day just around the corner where he is going to go back to heaven. He's going to ascend to heaven to be with his Father again. And he says, that hasn't happened yet. Don't don't cling to me. He's exhorting Mary not to forget the bigger picture of what's going on here. I have not yet ascended to my father. Kind of means there's still work to be done. Like we can't just hang out and be like, this feels so cool. It's great to be together again. Let's move. Because then he immediately gives her an assignment, right? Don't cling to me. I have not yet ascended to the father. But, what does he say? Go. But go to my brothers. Do you think he's talking about his like actual biological brothers here? that's not who Mary goes and talks to. She goes and talks to the disciples. Go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. What warmth and affection and grace that Jesus holds in his heart for his disciples as goofy as they've been, as slow to understand as they even still are, as weak as they were on the night of his crucifixion when most of them bailed and Peter actually even denied that he knew who he was, Jesus' thought for his disciples is, my brothers need to know. Go tell my brothers. I'm going to my father and your father. We share. My father is your father. My God is your God. We're a family This brotherhood with Jesus, this joint identification with God as Father, is available to us because of the resurrection. Because Jesus has risen from the dead, there's a pathway that he has opened that gets us back to God. And by simple faith, we can join his family. The mercy, the kindness extended in those simple words, my brothers. My Father and your Father. My God and your God. Back in the beginning of this gospel in John one twelve, John had said that he came to his own people and his own people did not receive him. But, one twelve, as many as did receive him, even those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become what? Fill in the blank. Children of God. We have the right to become children of God through faith in Jesus because he was crucified for our sins and he rose from the dead and defeated the grave and death forever. If you will receive me, if you believe on my name, I give you the right to be a child of God. You get to be one of my brothers, my sisters. My father is your father. Praise God. And so Mary responds obediently, having now been essentially the first to be commissioned by the risen Lord to proclaim his resurrection. She goes to the disciples in verse 18. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And that he had said these things to her. And that becomes the testimony of this first generation of Christians, the apostles and beyond that. Throughout the book of Acts, you read the whole book of Acts, that's their message. Jesus is alive. I've seen the Lord, in a sense. Really, in a way, that becomes the witness of all Christians down through the ages. We haven't seen him with the eyes of our bodies in the same way that Mary did and that Peter and John and the other disciples would in the coming verses. But in the life of the church, in the power of the Word of God, through the presence of the Spirit of God, we see. We've seen the Lord. We've seen the Lord at work and among His people. And so we have this message to announce I have seen the Lord. He's alive, and He's inviting people to come by faith and to become children. Of God, and so this passage sort of bookends begins with Mary grieving and confused at the tomb, and ends with her joyful, confident proclamation of the risen Christ: "He is alive! I have seen the Lord." Jesus will go on to appear to the rest of his disciples, and the next couple of weeks will be taken up with those uh, accounts. But I want to pause here and just talk about two important things that I think we see in these verses. Two important truths that we can take in from this. Certainly not exhaustive. There's more that could be said. But two things that, that come to me uh, immediately. Number one, Jesus prioritizes women. Jesus prioritizes women. The fact that Mary Magdalene is the first one at the tomb to find the stone rolled away. The fact that Mary is the first one to whom Jesus appeared in God's sovereign wisdom. He chose to appear first to Mary is no accident. Jesus could have appeared to anybody. When Peter and John were at the tomb. He could have walked around the corner, right? Here I am, guys. Why are you looking for for me in there? I'm a lot. But he didn't. He could have appeared to them when they were at their homes, hanging out in groups, wondering what was going to happen next. But he didn't. His first appearance was to this woman, Mary Magdalene. Culturally strange, to be sure. In this day and time, in a court of law, A testimony of a woman would not even be admissible. They wouldn't even receive a woman's word as truthful. That's not credible testimony. It's not all that dissimilar from our own day in some ways. There's certainly been progress made, but women are nevertheless still victims of marginalization, objectification. And I think that in our Me Too cultural moment, It's good for us to be reminded of the worth and the priority that Jesus places upon women. In his sovereign choice to appear first to Mary and to commission Mary to be the first evangelist, in a sense, of the risen Christ. We shouldn't miss that. God's heart for women is to raise them up and to to see them as co-heirs of the grace of life. That's the language that Peter himself will use in one of his letters later in the New Testament. So we need to not miss that. We need to make sure that we value and dignify and protect and honor women as the people of God. The second thing, and I think this is maybe the overarching truth of uh, of these verses, is that Jesus keeps his promises. Jesus keeps his promises. He does what he says he's going to do. Looking back at verse 9, Where John told us that as yet they did not understand the scripture, referring to the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, they didn't understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. So, in order for the scriptures to be true and fulfilled, Jesus had to rise from the dead. The resurrection was necessary in order for God to keep his word. And guess what? He kept his word. (laughs) He raised Jesus from the dead. Now, he could have in mind here some specific Old Testament references, like Psalm 1610 that says that you, speaking to God, you won't let your Holy One, that is your Anointed One, see corruption. In other words, to lie decaying in a grave could refer to the resurrection. In Isaiah 53, we usually go to this passage to talk about the suffering of Jesus. Right? He was stricken and smitten by God and afflicted, and we regarded him as you know, nothing to be noticed. But the final verses of that chapter actually have to do with new life. So Isaiah 53.10 says, When his soul makes an offering for guilt, which is what he's done on the cross, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days seems to speak of even life extending and ministry extending after his suffering. So there are, and there are others, there are Old Testament verses that perhaps are in John's mind. But I think it's more likely that John has in mind the broader themes of Old Testament teaching and prophecy. Just like Jesus would in Luke 24, after he's risen from the dead and he joins some disciples on the road to Emmaus, who also don't recognize him as Jesus, interestingly. And they're talking about what just happened. There was this fellow that, you know, you must be the only person in Jerusalem that doesn't know. Jesus is totally playing dumb. Like, he has no idea what's happening. And so they start telling him about how this one they thought would be the Messiah has been crucified. And since he's been crucified, he clearly isn't the Messiah. And so Jesus begins to show them from the Old Testament scriptures how all of that was about him. And how he must die and rise again. So Jesus' understanding of the Old Testament, of the Hebrew Scriptures, is that it all points forward to what he would accomplish in his life and his death and his resurrection. All the Old Testament speaks of this. And Paul would use a similar tactic in 1 Corinthians 15 where he says, I delivered to you what is of first importance, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures that he was buried, and that he was raised in accordance with the scriptures. Again, seeing as as a whole the Old Testament scriptures pointing forward to Christ, not just in his work as mediator and sin bearer, but in his work of defeating death and becoming the victor over sin and the grave. The Old Testament is all about the death and resurrection of the Messiah for the deliverance of his people. If you read the Old Testament with that in view, you're reading it like Jesus does. You're reading it like Paul does. That's how we're supposed to look at the Old Testament. So, all of these promises have been made for centuries to the Jewish people through these scriptures. Jesus fulfills them by rising from the dead. More immediately, back in John chapter 2, right after Jesus performed his first public miracle of turning water to wine, he enters the temple in Jerusalem And he sees people selling birds and and goats and stuff for sacrifice, and he gets a little upset. And he drives them all out, and he cracks the whip. And he says, you've turned my father's house into a house of thieves, right? Remember all that? And then the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? In other words, like, who do you think you are to tell us how to operate in the house of God? And Jesus said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews are like, it's taken us 46 years to build this temple. You're going to rebuild this thing in three days? But then John tells us he was speaking about the temple of his body. Therefore, when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Everything makes more sense to them in the rearview mirror. Oh, Jesus told us this, right? That's what you start to see as it dawns on his disciples. He told us that he would rise from the dead, and that was one way. Destroy this temple, and I will rebuild it in three days. John had to- Jesus had told his disciples in, uh, in his farewell speech, in John chapter 16, in a little while you will see me no longer, but then you will see me again, and your joy will return to you, and no one can take your joy away. He's talking about, you won't see me because I'll, I will die but then you will see me because I will rise and your joy will be, excuse me, your joy will return and no one can take it away. God keeps his promises. When God says he's gonna do something, he's gonna do it. You can count on it, you can bank on it. And when it comes to the work that was required for the saving of our souls for eternity, it's done. He answered it, he met it, he completed it. Are you tempted to disbelieve God's promises? What promise of God from his word are you slow to believe even today? I don't know if that's I don't know if God's really going to do that. I don't know if he's really going to come through. You know, maybe you're tired of doing the right thing. Right? Maybe you've patiently, persistently been serving God, but you feel like it's not getting you anywhere, it's not doing any good, no one's noticing. You're tempted to give up, to throw in the towel. But remember God's promise in Galatians 6, 9. Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we don't give up. So if you're like, I just don't know if it's worth it to keep serving God and doing the right thing. He says, just keep going. You will reap what you sow. right? The reward will come if you don't give up. Maybe your conscience is burdened with guilt over your own sin. You struggle to believe that God has truly forgiven you. Yeah, I walked an aisle. Yeah, I was baptized. Yeah, I prayed to ask Jesus into my heart. Yeah, I think I believe in him, but I'm just such a mess of guilt and shame, and I just don't really know if God's really forgiven me or accepted me. Hear the promise of God in 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's settled truth. That's a promise. If you confess your sins, he forgives you, period. If you've trusted in Christ for salvation, his mercy covers you. Rest in that. Why is that even possible? Because Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus' resurrection from the dead proves to us that God keeps his promises and that he has given us the power to persevere in faith and to reap his reward in due time.